Charles, thank you. Hey, I want you to open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, I'm going to do a part two in a small little series that I put together that in my chapel messages this fall. And uh, this little uh, sermon series is called, uh, that I started a couple of weeks ago, is called Born Identity. Uh, and, and I want to talk about our feelings because our feelings have ways of triggering uh, spiritual amnesia. How many of you love the Bourne films out there? I'm a Bourne fan, love Jason Bourne. Need, they, I think they need to do series uh, over the, you know, just keep it going because I love, I love the, the storyline. The storyline is this man has been trained to be a CIA operative, undercover CIA-like person. In the process of his training, he becomes totally reprogrammed. And to serve his country at this intense level, he has to give up his identity. He has to walk away and totally forget his born identity. And in his assignments, uh, he has to encounter all this violence and something snaps inside of him and he loses. He, he experiences this total amnesia, forgetting not only his born identity, but he even forgets his professional identity. And I think that sometimes that happens in us even as Christians as it relates to the power of our feelings. Our feelings drive so much of what we assume to be our identity. Our feelings are very powerful. Our emotional feelings are very influential. But I think that our feelings, if we're not careful, can become overrated. When significant things happen in our life, good or bad, immediately our first response is usually driven by our feelings in the moment. Uh, our logic or our common sense and sometimes even just flat-out re reality becomes blurred by the feelings inside of us that, that are so quick to take a commanding control in, in manipulating how we're processing what's happening in our world. And it's not altogether a bad thing, but it is a, not a, it's not the best way to interpret life purely through your feelings. So what I want to drive at in this uh, message today and Continuing what I started a couple of weeks ago is that our feelings that we have about ourselves often the result of things that happen to us. Our feelings are often the result of what people say about us. Our feelings are often related to things in our life that we totally do not have control of. And yet when something happens, someone says something to us or a circumstance is out of our control, our feelings kick in way ahead of our logic. Our feelings kick in way ahead of our common sense. It kicks in even before our, our behaviors. And, and sadly, our feelings get way out ahead of our faith. And this is what often drives our behaviors, our perspectives, our attitudes, our beliefs that really, if you look at it from a distance, are very illogical. And in some cases, our beliefs and our behaviors can really be stupid, all because we live so close to our feelings, closer to our feelings than we do our faith. Now, at a deeper level, it's not about just our behavior and not about our common sense. Below the surface of our behavior, below the surface of common sense, there's a level of distortion that our feelings drive. Let me give you a couple of examples. What do we often say about ourselves? I feel ugly. I feel ugly, but it's not really about our personal appearance. It's about whether or not I feel that I'm being accepted. Uh, when we say, I feel dumb, it's not really about our IQ. It's about, am I good enough? Am I smart enough? How about this one? I feel fat. And it's not about how much we weigh. It's about our self-image. 
And here's the issue. There's very little positive effect on any of us when we are consumed with feelings that are constantly whispering at us and sometimes even yelling at us about how ugly we are or how dumb we are or how fat we are. And why is that? Because even those feelings are incorrect. And yet we live in such a feeling-oriented world. doesn't really matter about what's logical. doesn't really matter about what's true. What matters is how I feel. If I feel fat in my world, I'm fat. If I'm ugly, in my, if I feel that way in my world, that's how I'm going to see myself. This is what drives postmodern ideas as it, as it relates to the relativity of truth. Moral relativism, this is what drives the the moral and the ethical revolution in our society as we see the glamorization of sex without any kind of boundaries, any kind of guidelines. Fewer and fewer people in our world know how to blush. Why? Because blushing is triggered by a feeling, a negative feeling. Why is that? Rather than avoiding a behavior that might trigger a negative, be- be- a negative feeling that is caused by feeling ashamed, what's more convenient today is just simply change the rules so that the behavior is no longer taboo, which means the behavior no longer causes these negative feelings. And what you have is now we have all these behaviors that previously were frowned upon that would bring a sense of embarrassment, but today we don't blush anymore. With social mores transformed, many, many behaviors are no longer a big deal. And thus, it doesn't cause us to blush as much, which means we can now enjoy certain activities out in the open where before we knew that these were wrong. I want you to think about this. We are less bothered by feelings that previously used to make us blush. And to a lot of people, that's good news. That's the way they want the world to evolve. They want all the negative feelings to be driven away, to be overcome. However, what do we become as people when we shrink the list of things that would make us blush and perhaps eventually get us to the place where nothing makes us blush at all? What kind of world would that be? I'll tell you where it gets us. It gets us to a planet where all of us are virtually like our pet dog or our pet cat or our pet goldfish. See, God made human beings... And he put inside of us this moral compass, a moral compass, an ethical compass that animals don't have. And it's when the moral compass is violated that certain feelings are triggered and it causes us to blush. It creates these feelings of embarrassment. And we see it from the get-go in Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. We're told immediately after Adam and Eve had eaten from the wrong tree, they sinned. The Bible says that the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Question, why did they make coverings? Why? It's because they realized they were blushing. Sin triggered an immediate feeling, and it wasn't a positive feeling. It was a feeling of embarrassment. It was a feeling of guilt. Can I even say it was a feeling of shame? Today, the same realization doesn't seem to trigger those kinds of feelings as powerfully. Today, we have our eyes opened. Today, we see nakedness. It's a billion-dollar industry. Today, there's no shame. There's no blushing. Because today, we're not going to tolerate anyone, even God, telling us that certain things are wrong. 
And so anything that we might do that might trigger this human, in, this human compass, this moral compass of something that isn't right, we're telling that voice that you're wrong and what matters is my feelings and my feelings must feel good. So we live in a day today where there are no rules and no boundaries and nothing's wrong and it doesn't matter how weird it is or how bizarre it is. There's no shame, no embarrassment. There's no one blushing. Here's the real issue. God doesn't even need to say anything to us to trigger these feelings that He's built inside of us of embarrassment. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, they didn't immediately hear God say, shame on you. They didn't need to. Instead, the Scripture is clear. They ate, their eyes were open, and they realized they were naked. In other words, their negative feeling of embarrassment, even shame, was triggered by something inside of them, not by a voice, not by a person attacking them or accusing them. And this is the point of what I want to drive to you in this message. A couple of weeks ago, I identified the feelings that we often deal with that have to do with worthlessness, that I feel worthless And the feeling of worthlessness in a very competitive society in which we live is very common and very debilitating. But from Ephesians chapter chapter 1, verse 4, the Bible says that God chose us. We might feel worthless, and yet the reality is that God chose us. Our feelings of worthlessness, in fact, really don't matter because the reality is that God says He chose us. So if we can focus on what God says to us in His Word, it has the power to free us from these feelings that are distorted. And so I talked about worthlessness a couple of weeks ago. This morning I want to talk about these feelings of shame. And so to set the stage, I want us to look at Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 7. Look at it with me. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love... God predestined us in adoption to His Son through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will to the praise of His glorious grace which is freely given us in the one He loves. Look at verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us. Now maybe you're saying to me, Dr. Gray, what's the big deal about this message? The reason this message, this principle is so critically important is because we are totally upside down in our society when it comes to shame. It's like in our world, we are bipolar when it comes to this this feeling, this emotion, this very real experience called shame. On the one hand, the pendulum swings to this far side where we feel overly shamed for things that we shouldn't be ashamed of. And then the swings to the other side, things that we have accommodated to that we should be ashamed of, but we don't feel that shame. We have this aversion to anything that would cause us to feel shame. So rather than living inside the perimeter, and I love how Jeff brought it out last Friday in his message called Love Lines, not guidelines, but love lines, that the law of God, the guidelines of God are meant to be ways in which his love is expressed to us to protect us. But rather than following those love lines, uh, living within the parameters of God's direction, we, we, we like to sneak through that electrical fence 
Even if it creates a little bit of a shock, if we can just get outside the fence, we'll do that. So what we do is we get enough people who would want to do what we want to do, and if you get enough people through the electrical fence, what eventually happens is the fence, that opening gets a little bit wider. Now we can sneak through that electrical fence, and we're not really shocked anymore by it. And what do we find ourselves? We find ourselves outside the fence, living large, doing our thing, and because a lot of other people are engaged, there is no shame. I'm okay, you're okay, live and let live, don't fence me in, I'm going to do it my way. All these philosophies of the world. And that's where we're at today, totally open range, no fences, no boundaries. And it seems like to some people, this is nirvana. We can do whatever we want to do, and we've suppressed all these feelings of guilt and shame. Let me tell you, it might feel like nirvana to some, but it is not anywhere near heaven. Why? Because this kind of living runs contrary to the moral, ethical, spiritual wiring that God put inside of us. Now, it's true, you can take something from a manufacturer and you can tweak it, you can change it, you can alter it to a point. You can take a stock engine and add all kinds of power and all kinds of torque to that automobile and all kinds of things, but that automobile will never be powerful enough to get the space shuttle into orbit. You can't buy a food blender at Walmart and turn it into a Winnebago. It's just not going to happen. You can't take a rocket engine and put it on the frame of your walk-behind lawnmower. You just can't do that. There are design limits to what God has originally manufactured, and that's how it is true with us. We, we insist, though, we've got to tweak our lives. We have to add things. We need to subtract things. We do things to our body and to our mind and even to our spirit to manipulate what it will do to help us feel better about ourselves. My body doesn't feel good. I've got to change my body. My life isn't fun, and so i got to do everything I can to keep the feeling of fun in my life. And there's nothing wrong with feelings of fun and feelings of happiness unless the feeling of fun and happiness is done at the expense of what's true and what's right and what's moral and what's biblical. Besides, I think we should entertain the question, where does a completely fenceless life lead us? A completely fenceless life is not the definition of freedom. Ironically, it's the exact opposite. When we are living a fenceless life, we eventually are held captive to our need to feel happy. It's kind of like that spoiled child or the manipulative parent or the controlling spouse or boss. We're always caving in to every whim and desire they have because we just don't want to handle their temper tantrum. We don't know how to deal with their fits of rage. And when feelings are what reigns our life, we become enslaved to making sure that our feelings are always happy. So what do we do about this? I think we get the picture of the shameless world that we live in. I like to call our world the, the, brush, the blush-free lifestyle. It's a problem. But for this gathering, for you, students here at North Central University, there's another problem with shame that we have to deal with. You see, on the one hand, in our world, our world doesn't feel shame anymore. And there's this intoxication of things that we do to make us happy regardless of moral boundaries. But on the other hand, there is this, this tendency among believers to feel shame for things that you shouldn't feel shame about. 
Feelings of shame aren't intoxifying for you, but they can be imprisoning for you. We're completely imprisoned by the shame of our sin, things in our past, things that might be even as recent as yesterday or even this morning, or maybe perhaps most dreadful is that you're imprisoned by shame because of something, some, something that someone did to you or something that someone continues to do to you or say about you or behave towards you. You might be here in this chapel and you're still manipulated by something that's been done in the past or is continuing to happen and you feel responsible and you feel guilty about that. The fact is God created you as an object of his love. You are a focus of Christ's will. You are the object of the Holy Spirit's power to do a work on this planet and yet you feel shamed because of something in the past that you've done or something that someone has done to you. And this needs to be dealt with. I feel so ashamed about my life, many of you feel. I feel shamed about my past and what I've become. Now, shame is triggered by sin. It is. That's the way our manufacturer, got, this is the way God created it. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve's immediate response and feeling to their sin was by design. Not because God gets a kick out of making us feel guilty and full of shame. Instead, it's actually the opposite. God instills into the human spirit a, a, a kind of instinctive guilt or shame response to sin that acts as an internal governor, keeping us safe, protecting us, ultimately, eventually, making us more happy than what the happiness we might think we find by doing whatever we want without any rules. Now, the glory of God is seen in the glory of the human life. The human life is not as glorious as God, obviously. But the glory of the human life is way more beautiful than the glory of animal life or even creation. We are special as human beings. We are unique. We are the crown of God's creation. We have the capacity for holiness. We have the capacity for glory. But not if we act like animals, ruled by our feelings. Animals are wonderful, and they're cute. And some animals are, are incredibly majestic. But they are nothing compared to human beauty, the way God created us. Before Adam even met Eve, he had this fabulous job in the Garden of Eden, tending the garden and naming the animals. I mean, it would be an animal lover's paradise to the nth degree. And yet we find that in Genesis chapter 2, in verse 20, even the naming of the animals and tending the garden, there was still something missing. So God created Eve because no other helper was suitable. So animals are great. We have two pets at home, but there's a human beauty that is unmatched by any animal, especially when human beings put on a very special makeup that I call blush. Blush. Blush is beautiful. I'm talking about the flush of blood to the human face that is triggered by embarrassment, even shame. It's beautiful because it's a reminder that we're human. We're human. Blushing is a reminder that we're still in touch with God. We're still in touch with this special wiring that He put inside of us. 
that we're not like what Paul said to Titus in Titus 1.15, to the pure all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their consciences are corrupted. He's describing people that don't blush anymore. To Timothy, he writes about hypocritical liars whose consciences had been seared as with a hot iron, people who didn't blush anymore. The writer to Hebrews says, how much more then will the blood of Christ cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death? And then Paul, even in his testimony in Acts 24, verse 16, he says, I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. I want to blush when I need to blush. See, the bottom line is that blushing beautifies. A proper response to our sin, and we're embarrassed, and we feel guilt, and we feel that sense of, I know that I want to live better, I want to do better, I know that I can't earn salvation, but I want to be a pure and spotless bride before Christ. And when we violate that, it creates this unsettled feeling that the world wants to run away from, but we choose not to run away from because this sense of shame, this ability to blush, is an indication of God's image inside of us. What really makes us beautiful about blushing over our sin is that it points us to Jesus. The most incredible beautifying treatment a person can receive is what Jesus offers us in proper response for what we're guilty of and what we feel ashamed of. I feel so ashamed, we often say. And it's a debilitating feeling, but... It's not so much about that feeling of shame or guilt. It's how we respond to that feeling of embarrassment, knowing that I need to be made right with God. Let me suggest that you have two options. You can either respond with blush, that uncomfortable sense of embarrassment, and come to God and let Him forgive you and reestablish your true identity, that you are not defined by your behavior, but your behavior and your attitude and your actions must be redeemed. So you can do it through blush or you can do it through cover-up. How many of you got up on the most important day of your life, seen your pictures, and you had the big old white zit on the end of your nose or on some part part of your face? Isn't it amazing how a blemish pops up at the most inopportune times? What do you do? I've done it before on Sunday mornings. I put on my wife's (laughs) cover-up. Got to cover up that zit, man. cover-up. What makes us beautiful isn't cover-up. What makes us beautiful is that we've been covered up, as in the very special makeup. Wow, I finally got a mic drop there. (laughs) What makes us beautiful is not the cover-up, but that we've been covered up. Let me give you three quick things from this verse from Ephesians 1. What makes you beautiful is that you've been forgiven. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. You know that animals don't have this makeup. We do. And forgiveness makes us beautiful when we apply it. Let your blushing for sin drive you to a God who's ready to forgive. Regardless of what you've done, Christ's blood has covered you. What makes you beautiful is that you're forgiven. Secondly, what makes you beautiful 
is that you've been redeemed. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sin. Redemption is beautiful. It's the picture being ransomed. It's the picture being rescued. It's the picture being bought back. It's the picture of returning. Something was lost. It's found. Something was stolen. It's been returned. I've made some bad decisions driven by deceitful feelings, and those feelings didn't last, and now I feel like God can't even forgive me. No, that's not true. He's reaching out to you to redeem you, to buy you back. And he would say to you, as he said to the woman caught in adultery, neither do I condemn you, but I'm redeeming you. That's what makes you beautiful. And lastly, you're beautiful because of grace. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he gave us just a little bit of. No, that he lavished on us. That he lavished God's grace, always in the Bible, is defined in lavish terms. Not little bits, but boatloads of grace. I want you to close your eyes. I want to pray for you before we dismiss this morning. I don't know what baggage or what circumstance or what spiritual or moral condition you bring into chapel this morning. None of you are perfect. I'm not perfect. If I allow the Holy Spirit enough space, the Holy Spirit will bring even into my mind things that I need Him to forgive me of. And some of you might not have to go back very far at all to something you said this morning or something you did. And it might even be some lifestyle or some thing that you keep going back to and you're shamed by it. And that's a powerful feeling. But please understand that when you feel guilt for your sin, that's a gift of God. The problem is not feeling guilty for your sin. The problem is when you no longer feel guilty for your sin. So today, Lord, as we close this chapel and open this altar for any who might want to come and pray and reflect on your lavish grace, your quick to redemption, your quickness to redeem us, and your never-ending ability to forgive. As we give you our lives, we give you our feelings, and we will no longer be deceived by those feelings of shame, thus run away from it. We'll deal with it. We'll bring it to you, and we'll say, God, thank you that you are able to forgive me again. Thank you for your work in us. Help us to be people that are driven, led by our faith in your word and our feelings being subject to what we know to be true, that you've chosen us, you've loved us, you've forgiven us, you've redeemed us, and you've graced us. I pray in your name, amen. If you want to come and pray, I'd love to pray with you at the altars. Otherwise, have a great day. Bless you guys.